Hello and welcome to Lunch with Lee. I'm your host Shane Lee. Today on the show, Phil War, a former Australian rugby union footballer, playing 136 first-class matches and 79 tests for the Wallabies. Post-career, he works with the NAB as an executive, broker distribution and is a mad golfer. And Andrew Mertens, a former New Zealand rugby union player, playing 281 first-class matches, predominantly for Canterbury and the Crusaders and 70 for the All Blacks. Post-career, he's a director, private client at ARC Global Wealth and remains arguably one of the greatest All Blacks of all time to pull on the famous jersey. Let's get started. We'll get started today on the show, Phil War, a former Australian rugby union footballer. Welcome, Phil. G'day, Shane. Good to be here. And uh, a shame we're not sitting around a table having lunch, but uh, this is as, as good as. I promise you we'll be doing that once this lockdown finishes. And another special guest, Andrew Mertens, a former New Zealand rugby union player. Welcome, Mertz. How are you, mate? Shane, thanks for having me, mate. Worry in terms of, you know, speak for yourself. I'm, I've set up with a little table for one here around lunchtime. I'm happy to keep eating. <laughs> You've been doing that for a while. Actually, any t- it's the same as any time I invite you out for lunch. It ends up just being maybe sit by myself when you get too busy. As, as soon as the tab comes out, I run. <laughs> now, see, um, Andrew, you boys would have played quite a bit against each other, wouldn't you, you and Phil? Yeah, well, I spent probably a little bit of an overlap. Um, I'm a bit older than Phil, as is fairly obvious, but um, uh, I spent you know, several years trying to avoid blokes like him. Um, <laughs> one of those just pain in the neck on the field, just an absolute nuisance. They shouldn't really be in the game, the number seven, because if they if they do their job well, it's just a it's a role that really stops the flow of the game. I mean, <laughs> I was only a little bloke. If I ran near any one of those blokes, I guarantee there was a tackle got made. They up their stats and they steal the ball and it gets given to the other side. So they're <laughs> a bit of a blight on the game. So I tended to avoid worry, but I haven't done so since I got to Sydney. Been seeing a lot of them over the years, and in fact, I pioneered a little bit that. Uh, that uh, job opportunities now got with the Red Star. I was at NAB for a while. I thought they had low standards when they employed me, but cheapest creepers. How the mighty have fallen now. Now, Phil, was it was it always like this playing against Mertz on the field, mate? Yeah, always, always a bit, uh, a bit chirpy, a bit good, good on the lip. Uh, he would have been a good wicket keeper, actually, I reckon, standing behind the stumps and, uh, and into the batsman, but. Uh, I mean, we, we, we had some good uh, good battles there, and uh, as, as you said, we uh, crossed over, and um, yeah, then then Mertz went uh, off to Europe, uh, and then uh, obviously came back to Sydney, and uh, been pretty close since uh, since he's come back. I think probably like uh, like all good New Zealanders, they normally end up in Sydney. <laughs> yeah. Now, now Andrew, mate, you're you're born in Durban, South Africa. You played for the All Blacks in New Zealand. You speak French, and now you live in Australia. Can you make your fucking mind up, mate? What's going What's going on? Making a bid for the United Nations. Uh, it's it's actually funny that Warry brings out wicket keeping because I'm sure it leads on to the subject of I was never a cricketer. I was a tennis player. I was scared of a hard ball, but uh, I, I got my first ever wicket on the SCG thanks to Warry's wicket keeping. Yes. I thought I was getting the ball down fairly quickly, and uh, next thing he's keeping up and uh, got a blind a, a leg side. I was about to say blind side. Got a leg side stumping when I thought I was ripping them down quite quickly. But anyway, it's a wicket on the SCG, so I took it. So you know, I've got him to thank for that. Big time, mate. And, and Phil, you you were a wicket keeper at Shaw School, the second best Phil to, to be a wicket keeper there. I think Phil Embry might have got might have pipped you at the post being a Test wicket keeper. But you loved your cricket, didn't you? Yeah, I love my cricket. I remember that wicket at the SCG there, Mertz, because I reckon I took the bowls off so quickly down that leg side. 
that the batsman didn't have time to lift his foot. <laughs> but I do, I do, I do love my cricket. It's uh, I'm a bit of a cricket tragic and uh, uh, always uh, obviously enjoyed watching uh, watching you, Shane, and uh, and others of your uh, your era. So uh, yeah, I do, do love cricket, and uh, as Mert said, try and get out uh, when we get a chance on the SCG and. Uh, have a run around with the lads uh, once a year. Fantastic. And, Phil, what was it like actually playing the All Blacks? Like, I, I know um, in cricket circles, playing New Zealand was always fantastic. For us in cricket, it was more versus England, but clearly playing the All Blacks must have been the pinnacle. Yeah, I think I think so. And, and uh, yeah, probably very similar to, uh, yeah, you, you as a kid growing up watching the cricket and watching the Ashes and always wanting to play in an Ashes series. Uh, yeah, for us as a kid growing up watching the Wallabies and All Blacks, you always wanted to play in a Blazers Cup uh, series. And so uh, that, that that still remains, I think, the pinnacle for, uh, for for rugby in Australia. Obviously, there's a lot of talk uh, around Rugby World Cups, but, uh, yeah, the, the, you can go through a rugby world cup without uh, having and win a world cup without having played the all blacks and uh um you know it's, it's just one of those rivalries you know we're obviously uh, uh you know the part of the anzac block and uh, and good friends off the field but uh you know to to get out there and play a Bledisloe cup that that is the in, in my opinion that is the the pinnacle of uh, of, of rugby in australia and uh, and obviously the world cup on the world stage but uh but the battles every year with uh, with the all blacks are, are pretty special and andrew how did you guys feel well mate we Traditionally, the All Blacks' greatest foe was the Springboks, right right back from, I think, the first tour that the, the, the two countries engaged in in 1921. Mm-hmm. And Australia was was much more a recent arrival in terms of being a year-in, year-out uh, genuine contender. And that's – I'm not meaning to be derogatory in any sense. It was just the way it was, you know, for decades. But, you know, in my era, um, South Africa was out of the loop because of apartheid um, sanctions, yep. and we were starting to play more and more, you know, with under-19s, under-21s, secondary schools against Australia being, you know, logistically, obviously, it, it makes sense. So we had a lot of contact when I was coming through in those sort of ages, under-19s, under under-21s, and we'd be playing against blokes like, you know, my, my first ever match for a New Zealand representative rugby team was under-19s, and we played against George Gregan, uh, who was marking Justin Marshall down in Dunedin, and I was up against Pat Howard. And so, you know, at nine and 10, we've, we've always had that, that connection with those guys way back to 92. And then, you know, a couple of seasons after that, I was watching Bledisloe tests and, you know, next thing Pat Howard pops up 1993, tried to take on with his first touch of international <laughs> test rugby ball. He, he tried to take on Michael Jones, I think, in his own 22 and got tackled. But George Gregan was the year after that, I think, as well. And suddenly it was blokes that I'd been playing against were playing international rugby. And, you know, the... Obviously, without South Africa being in the mix, there was a lot more contact between New Zealand and Australia. And um, a lot of my career was was when Australia were world champions, you know, from 91 and then in 99 again. And they're very, very dominant. So I've got the dubious distinction of having played in an era where we've probably got the worst winning record against Wallabies mm-hmm. teams. Um, and we're up against, you know, a fantastic group of, of players in that era. You mentioned Pat Howard there, mate. I think he did most of his damage when he actually worked for Creed Australia. <laughs> I don't know if he did a great job there, but... Um, he had, I remember uh, he had the hairiest forearms. He's, uh, <laughs> but the other thing was he always used to get cut open in his head when he played for the Brumbies and he'd go off the field and get strapped up and come back on. But inevitably, the strapping around his head would <laughs> completely block out one eye. So he'd be looking around almost like a pirate at times, just working off one eye from the number 10 jersey. But yeah, it's, it's nice to have that, that connection with Paddy right back to, to 92. Um, but also the guys like Ori, you know, we, were, we 
came or professional rugby came in just as we were sort of starting our, our international careers. And quite often you'd get whipped away where they used to have test dinners and that you'd get whipped away after the game to go and do this new thing called professional rugby, which, um, you know, your recovery was important. So we didn't maybe get the social connectivity that they had in previous eras. So for me, living in Sydney in the last eight years and, and connecting more properly, more more deeply with, with guys like Warry or, um, you know, Phil Kearns or David Wilson, those sort of blokes I used to play against um, has, has just been thrilling. I'm sure it would. Uh, I want to ask you first, Andrew, I'll ask you too, Phil, but um, one great bit of theatre in rugby is, is the Haka. And Andrew, what what did the Harker mean to you guys? I'm going to defer straight to Warry because he's got one of these <laughs> Wallaby stories that gets trotted out every lunch. I'm one of the token New Zealanders gets out to all these rugby lunches in Sydney and around Australia, and inevitably there'll be a Wallaby wants to tell a story about the Harker. I just want to say that I grew up. I'm not Maori, but I grew up uh, in a little Maori town in New Zealand called Tuahiwi. So. Despite what you may hear, I did grow up doing uh, more than my fair share of haka. But uh, but Wari, I'm sure will be able to tell you tell you what happened when the haka started up, and I was in it. Well, you, you're very intimidating, Mertz, when I look <laughs> up and see the haka. But uh, I always joke, you know, it's very much a spectator sport, the haka, because when you face it, you sort of you face the you pick out your opposite number. You know, I'll be on Richie McCaw, and I'll be on Richie. I'm going to lock eyes with him and, uh, you know, I'm going to belt you and he's looking at me thinking he's going to belt me. And then, uh, you know, we always joke that uh, you'd look up as the uh, All Blacks set up and uh, you'd, you'd, you'd see Jonah Lomu and you'd go, shit, don't lock eyes with him. Uh, Umunga, nah. Jerry Collins, nah. Mialamu, nah, not him. And then you'd see the little white bloke down the back, Mertz, and you'd go, oh, mate, I've got, I've got this bloke. And uh, I'd laugh because Mert, Mertz, every time he did the hark, was it 70 times for the All Blacks, he probably had 22 sets of eyes all on him. <laughs> yeah, I always found the hucker more intimidating for me than the opposition. <laughs> now it's And look, it's... It, it, it was an awesome thing to be a part of. It's, it's a great expression of our yep. um, unique culture in New Zealand. Um, we never did it with a sense of giving ourselves any sort of advantage. I can understand why people look and go, gee, this is a bit of an indulgence mm-hmm. for New Zealanders to be able to do this uh, because you, you don't see it really anywhere else. You, obviously, the, the Pacific Island nations have, have started doing theirs, the Fiji and Thimby, et cetera. Um, they do theirs as well. But it, it is a bit of an indulgence, and I think we've always got to remember that. We're not looking to get an advantage from it. It was a way that we were expressing our pride and our heritage and our culture. Um, but I think there's a sort of somewhere in the middle. There's a happy balance between, you know, New Zealanders accepting that this is um, a, a fairly um, what's it called? It's an exceptional circumstance, an exceptional indulgence to be yep. to be able to do this. But it's you know, it's it's a good part of rugby. It's it's when when kids around the world are, are thinking about the All Blacks or thinking about rugby or New Zealand, then inevitably you know these young kids will come back to the haka and. You get, you know, little kids in Argentina imitating it and stuff like that. Yeah, so it's a really good vehicle for for promoting the sport and particularly for promoting New Zealand, of course, and the culture. Yeah, one of the uh, one of the, one of the only unions that have made a stance on the Harker and thinking it was an unfair advantage was uh, was the Welsh. And uh, I think there's, there's some great footage of the mid two thousands when uh, the Welsh and the All Blacks stood off against each other after the Harker because I think traditionally. Uh, the All Blacks only step away from the Haka when uh, the opposition turns away. And uh, so the Welsh stood there and the All Blacks stood there and it went for about, uh, you know, over a minute with just a standoff. And, uh, you know, we had Kaplan, the referee, trying to separate them and you had 80,000 people at Millennium Stadium going nuts. So the next year, the Welsh Rugby Union said, you can't be the Haka. 
And, uh, and so the All Blacks did the Harker uh, in the change room before they ran out onto the field because they weren't allowed to do it on the field. And uh, I think after about eight minutes, it was 21-0 to the All Blacks and the Welsh thought that's not such a great idea. Let them do it. Hey, Phil, you, you mentioned um, just, just before uh, about Jonah Lomu and God rest his soul, but, like, he must have been seriously intimidating. He's a mountain of a man, wasn't he? Yeah, he was He was just – at that the time, and, and when we see athletes come through now, we probably see – more um, athletes of his size, but maybe not as big, but certainly the bigger, faster wingers coming through post uh, the Jonah era. But he, he was just, yeah, in his time, so much bigger, faster and stronger than, uh, than everyone else. And, uh, and, and he, was, he, he was a game changer for, uh, for rugby, I think. And yeah, the footage from the 95 uh, Rugby World Cup and Mertz is a lot closer to him uh, there than, than I was. Um, but uh, that, that, was, uh, that was game changing, I think, um, for rugby as a code uh, worldwide, just the way that he uh, dominated a, a tournament the way he did. And uh, you know, I only got to play him a few times. And uh, I just I just remember, I, I just jumped at him when he was running at me and just trying to hang on for as long as I could until I got help. And, uh, uh, but he, he was, he was he, during that sort of mid-90s, late 90s, he was uh, by far the best rugby player in, in the world. And uh, I mean, Mertz, Mertz played uh, a lot with him and uh, would have had some great experiences. How did you find him, Mertz? Frightening. I found him frightening, yeah. even when yeah. I was playing alongside him. Um, <laughs> he was fantastic. Really good team man, really quiet and humble off the field. And he took more than his fair share of, of attention in a way. We, a lot of us in the team got, to, got the benefit of that because he just got thronged by everyone and yeah. really took took a lot of that sort of publicity heat <laughs> on behalf of the team. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, I've, I've played against them at times in New Zealand where you had three or four blokes lining up in a little bunch because he's standing opposite them, standing first receiver off a line out and there's not going to be any subtlety around it. They're going to throw the ball to him and he's just going to run into people like, like Skittles. So, yeah. um, you know, you've, you've got three or four blokes all standing together with their knees knocking together, pretty nervous. And I was the most nervous of them, but it was good to see that other people got scared as well at times, maybe not as much as I did, but yeah, he was just, just a freak as, as Warry said, um, but great to play alongside him and a, and a good team man, you know, and we didn't know at the time the challenges, Maybe maybe the captain Sean Fitzpatrick knew a bit more than, than the rest of us. We didn't know the right. medical challenges he was going through, but to to know what he did and to realise he was playing with something of an anchor attached at the time because of his health issues was was just even more astounding. I might just take a little break now. Um, we are in lockdown, so I'm cooking today. I'm going to try and keep the kilos off, so I'm going to do a nice little Caesar salad, mate. With a little bit of light mayonnaise there, of course an O'Brien beer, a little glass of uh, a little glass of Chablis to go with the French dish. That should be good, I think. Let's get started. John O'Brien is a legend of Australia's beer industry. In 2003, he dreamed of producing a great-tasting beer that could be enjoyed by everyone, free from the ill effects of mass-produced wheat and barley. John began a brewing journey blending unique aromas and flavours offered by ancient grains such as sorghum and millet. He perfected recipes over time which have led to 40 local and international awards, including three gold medals at the Australian International Beer Awards, a gold medal at the Indies and a silver medal at the Beer World Cup. Proudly 100% Aussie-owned, made in Ballarat, O'Brien Beer is Australia's most awarded gluten-free beer and widely available around Australia through major retailers and online at rebellionbrewing.com.au. O'Brien Beer, the beer that loves your back. Spartan Sports is recognised as one of the world's most exciting and innovative sporting brands with a community focus. 
Our product range across cricket, rugby, football, volleyball, basketball and fitness has been developed to sell directly to any club, school, corporate or individual. Go to our website and order directly to your front door. www.spartansportshq.com Spartan Sports, unearth the warrior in you. Now, Warrior, have you, you must have found, because I know I have, um, it's been frustrating watching the Wallabies in the last you know, X amount of years. And they, they beat the French the other night. They just got there. But we're, we're playing sort of a, a third-ranked French team on a on a number two free-to-air channel on GEM. Um, it's, it's, how, how do you think the Wallabies are going personally? Yeah, I, I think yeah, sport, sport's been changed a fair bit over the last 18 months, uh, uh, in, in my view, just, just in terms of the challenges, just to get some, uh, some content. <clears throat> so, so just just to get the game away was pleasing. Obviously, it was meant to be the SCG. Um, then, then you've got to uh, you've got the overlay also of uh, yeah the French having to quarantine uh, when they came to Australia, like everyone else when they uh, come through our borders. So, um, yeah, the French top fourteen final uh, was only a, a week ago. So uh, they're, they're missing a few players, but they've got a, a very strong under twenties squad. So in the last. Three years they've won uh, two under twenties World Cups, so mm. uh, some really good, strong French players coming through. So they're, they're not they're not uh, too far off uh, what their best uh, team could be with a bit more experience. Um, so uh, so so I think we should give them the appropriate uh, respect in terms of the quality they've brought out. Um, to your point, though, I think yeah, rugby uh, has been a little bit inconsistent from the Wallabies' performance for the last. Um, yeah, a few years really. I mean, we have uh, a couple of uh, great performances that uh, that brings back a lot of hope, uh, mm. and then we fade away again. So uh, yeah, I think that the coaching staff that the, the Wallabies have assembled are very good. There's some good young talent coming through, but uh, yeah, you go through the history of, uh, of rugby and strong teams, and it's always been uh, teams with the, the best nine and ten. And I'm not just saying that because Mertz is on the uh, on the uh, on the podcast, but but uh, yeah, the teams with the best nine and ten go on and win tournaments and win world. Cups and uh, yeah, for, for as far back as uh, yeah the, the late eighties uh, right through to uh, yeah the most recent World Cup in twenty nineteen, the teams of the best nine and ten win the uh, win the World Cup, and that's where we need to do a lot of focus. I think we've got some good talent coming through. We've probably got one of the best tight fives in in world rugby, uh, yep. certainly front rows. Um, and then our back row is always competitive, but uh, but we really need a nine and ten to stand up. So you know, in my thinking, you know, you see Jake uh, Jake Gordon, great talent. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it would be awesome to see him be fully fit uh, and uh, and cement a, a, a halfback spot. And then uh, yeah, James O'Connor's done a great job coming back from a lot of controversy. Uh, been around for a long time, but matured as a uh, as 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 a person. And I think that uh, if we can get that nine and ten solidified and some consistency, then yeah, I think there's enough talent uh, across Australian rugby to be uh, competitive when everyone's fully fit. We'll never have the uh, the depth that the All Blacks and other nations have, but I'm pretty optimistic uh, around yeah you know, what the future holds, and it's exciting too. We had the World Cup in France in 23, then we've got the Lions here in in 25, and then obviously there's the uh, the, the World Cup bid for 27. So um, a good a good crop of young players coming through, but it's you know, I hate using the word rebuilding because uh, everyone uses it when they're not doing well. But I do think we're we've actually got a good young crop of players. And you can't do that overnight, can you? So the challenge for Dave Rennie is how does he build it? And you know you could go out and put your best best 23 out and and give yourself best chances of, of good results, or you could you know, just bite the bullet and, and which I think he's doing and, and trying to broaden out the group of players that does have international experience that, you know, will also put pressure on one another 
for for places in the team. And you know, as, as Rory mentioned, you know, New Zealand's got more depth, um, and that's that's not not just by luck. It's a, it's a different environment across there. It's it is easier to funnel the best athletic talent. Uh, into rugby over there than it is here in a much more competitive landscape in Australia. But it's, it's, it's also not just by luck. They work very hard on getting the best out of players and how they manage players into teams. And you look at the Crusaders, for example, that every year throws out in Super Rugby, throws out three or four kind of rookies mm. who by the end of Super Rugby have really cut their teeth and established themselves as genuine Super Rugby players. Whether you go back to, you know, George Bridge and Severu Reese and um, uh, David Havili or, you know, Matt Todd retires and then they've started pulling out Ethan Blackadder in the last season and a half. And, Cullen Grace, those sort of guys. So New Zealand rugby does that pretty well. It's geared up to do that pretty well. And it hasn't been like that here for the last few years. So it does take some time to to get those those combinations going. And so you do see some inconsistency. Or like the other night, you know, a few mistakes. When you look at that that Wallabies back line, from 9 through to 13, there weren't two players from the same super rugby team. Um, so, you know, it just takes time to, to, to pull those sort of things together. And the Two and two and a half seasons out from from World Cup, it's when you need to be doing it now. It's too late uh, in a year's yeah, time. I agree. If you're enjoying this episode, maybe check out a former episode with Nick Far Jones and Mark Taylor, where we talk all things rugby union, cricket, and captaincy. Richie, you played with some great um, captains, some great leaders. Um, New Zealand's had probably one of the greatest leaders of all time, in Richie McCaw. Um, how important is the the captaincy role? Do you think in rugby union and and Michael Hooper? He's been given. I think he's played 106 times now for the for the Wallabies. He's probably captained most of them, but he hasn't got a great winning record. Do you change your captain? What are your thoughts around that? Personally, Warrior will be a bit closer to this, and particularly yeah. captain captaining from seven. But I, I think Hooper's been fantastic. I think he's done all he can. I don't think it's his fault mm-hmm. uh, around the depth of the, the talent, either in the Wallabies or in, more broadly in, in Super Rugby. But I think the the, the balancing act for a captain these days is to have the ultimate authority and, and, and be that figure, but also not stunt the growth of the other leaders around you. And rugby's grown from a game that 20 or 30 years ago was dictated by the captain and the halfback and the fly half. And, and now, you know, it needs a much broader group because, you know, You've got some concentration risk there back in the day. If any one of those three players was was having an off day, at least one of them, you know, it's it's tough to drive the team with that leadership model. Now it's more, you know, probably seven or eight guys that you're relying on across the team, or girls that you're relying on across the team to take some of that leadership responsibility as well. So for Hooper, you know, he's hidden shoulders, I think, the, the most experienced and and best candidate for captain in the Wallabies. His challenge is to, is to, you know, bring his experience, but at the same time help nurture other guys in key positions that should have key leadership roles. So that's that's a building process as well. And it's one thing that the All Blacks have done incredibly well in the last 10 or 12 years is broadening that kind of leadership group um, for more players to, to take responsibility on the field. And they've got it, it's not never perfect, but they've got it pretty well set up now across the board. So a guy like a Sam Whitelock, doesn't need to be the old school um, type five captain banging his fist and, and, and stuff like that and screaming at players. He says what he needs to, but he can rely on other guys around him as well and also play his own game. Warren, do you think, um, do you think he should uh, maintain his captaincy? Yeah, I think, I think Merch has called out uh, probably the most important aspect there is, and that's the, 
yeah, the leadership group rather than just the leader. And like you go through and look at the history of Richie McCaw and, and Richie was outstanding as a leader. Um, but then you look around at, at the leadership group he had around him, you know, you had so Tony Woodcock, uh, Mia Lamu, uh, uh, Sam Whitelock, Brad Thorne, you know, Kieran Reid was helping. You know, then you had Aaron Smith, Dan Carter, Conrad Smith, Ben Smith. And so they had this very mature um, group of leaders. And so, uh, yeah, whilst Richie was the captain, uh, the, their leadership was uh, was right through their team. And uh, and that's why they were so strong for so long. Uh, and, and if you look at uh, Hooper, and, uh, and, and it'd be no criticism of Hooper for his performance uh, as a winning percentage, but, yeah, has he had that same level of maturity uh, in his leadership group around him? And uh, I think that uh, you can only be a great leader if you've got that experience and you can, uh, um, you can you can filter out other activities and other leadership and responsibilities across uh, other players. And that, that's where I, I think uh, yeah, Hooper needs help. He needs other players to stand up and take responsibility of different aspects of the game. Uh, you know, and, and he's got the, uh, the capability and certainly the experience to be the captain, uh, but he needs more help. Yeah, definitely, mate. Hey, um, in, in cricket, uh, the fast bowlers, you know, we always refer to them as like a, dumb as a box of hammers, and I'm sure you get those in, the, in some of the rugby teams. But, Andrew, what was the story you told once about the prime numbers? <laughs> well, it actually started out, I don't know, I was just trying to look for excuses for New Zealand dumping out of the World Cup again. We, we had 24 years of doing it and came up with all sorts of excuses, whether it was the referee or whether we would, you know, nobbled by a, a waitress in South Africa or, you know, just home home ground advantage. Time, <laughs> we, had all, we had all sorts. And, and my thought in 2019 was that, that it extended even further than that because the squads, when I heard that the squads for the World Cup were 31, I thought, well, where do they pull 31 from? I mean, it's, it's two times a team of 15 plus one more. But other than that, I couldn't find any link to, to work out why there were 30. One in a squad, and it got me thinking even further. To how would you actually divide up and start doing drills when you've got a squad of thirty-one? It's the prime number. You can't do, you know, you can't divide into groups of two, groups of three, groups of five, <laughs> seven, four, whatever. And so I started thinking maybe that's the reason. You know, the All Blacks are very, very well honed with their drills and, and very, very organised, and, and maybe that was what caused us the the loss in the semi final to England in twenty nineteen. We just. Uh, couldn't do our preparation because we, we, we didn't work out the 31's a prime number and we can't get groups together. <laughs> it just sort of developed. I was trying, yeah, desperately looking for excuses, really. Hey, Phil, Phil post, um, post-retiring, post mate, you, you actually did the city to Hobart a few years ago, which I think is absolutely a ridiculous thing to do, mate. Although, being in lockdown now, I probably would jump on a boat and go to Tassie in, 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 the, in the big seas. But how'd you, how'd you find that, mate? And how'd you get into it? Yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty cool experience. I've done six, so... Uh, so it was six six senior Hobart starts and uh, and only four senior Hobart. So I've done two senior Sydney's to be break down uh, halfway down the coast. But uh, yep. I mean, it's, it's, we started in two in thousand nine, so it was our first year, and uh, and the idea was get together um, a few celebrities, sports people, and uh, and then a professional crew and try and raise as much money as we can uh, for the Loyal Foundation. So. Uh, so yeah, started in two thousand nine. We um, yeah we we came fourth. Two thousand ten, we came second. Two thousand eleven, we actually beat Wild Oats uh, by three minutes and eight seconds and one line on us. Yeah. And uh, 
I think it's, it's pretty interesting when you talk about uh, retirement and the challenges of retirement. You would have gone through this and you know a lot of people who have. Uh, but uh, but finding a team sport whereby you feel part of a team and a culture is quite difficult. And I found uh, yeah, the senior Hobart was actually uh, really helpful in in filling that void. And uh, we, we, we've had some great time uh, uh, throughout uh, the Loyal Foundation uh, campaigns on uh, on Investec Loyal originally and then Perpetual Loyal. Um, but uh, but great fun, and uh, I think we raised over six million dollars for charity uh, yeah, you know, yeah. through the process, and uh, it's been been very very enjoyable. Andrew, I'm assuming when you came over to Sydney, you came via business class, not not via boat. I was on my way back from from France. No, I, I got a, I had a job lined up with Phil Kearns, actually. You know, jobs for the boys, and uh, he certainly didn't fly me uh, on on any expensive <laughs> seat. So, no, that was eight years ago. Now, I was just about to say, with the uh, I can't imagine doing that Sydney to Hobart. I mean, I come from a country of sailors, but um, I'm from Christchurch, and you know, even though the water does get into double figures sometime during the middle of summer, um, it's it's never really been. A, a big pursuit down in Christchurch, the yachting. So I couldn't imagine doing something like that. I um, I know Warry did was pretty thorough with it. He he uh, wanted to prepare himself pretty well before he went and didn't want to make an idiot of himself on that Sydney to Hobart. So he tried to sort of recruit a team on one of those online sort of yachting platforms and he eventually worked out Grinder wasn't for yachting. So um, that I fell got, apart. I got concerned when I was sitting at lunch and uh, said that uh, Mertz was a metre away. Yeah, <laughs> 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 must have been at another table. Then I was wait, still waiting for you. <laughs> hey, Andrew, I was going to ask you, mate. You're from a, a long line of rugby players. Your, your grandfather um, played for Canterbury in the 1920s. Um, played in an unofficial All Blacks match, and, and your dad was also first five. Played for Canterbury. Um, do, you, do you have kids, and are they um, um, are they into rugby as well? <laughs> Oh yes, that's an interesting. I'm one of these um, sort of modern families as well, so I've I've got one plus two plus two, <laughs> gotcha. um, and uh, of those five, in essence, three are um, three are girls playing netball. Although um, at eight, ten, and and twelve, they are showing certainly an interest in rugby, and I think that's fantastic. I think the opportunities for for girls now, same that's as right, for boys yeah. coming through in rugby, is 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 awesome, and I think it's really going to help. Um, the game, particularly in Australia, it's, it's a battle for the family wallet now. And so, you know, the opportunities and, and the women um, rugby players that I've come across have been fantastic in terms of role models for, for young girls and getting them in. They take their their responsibilities really seriously in terms of encouraging young girls to get into sport and get into rugby. So that's fantastic. But yeah, my um, my 21-year-old, my not so much into rugby. Um and my 12-year-old loves it, but he loves cricket even more, mate. And um, I've never been a cricket dad or known anything about cricket other than getting that fantastic leg side stumping at the SCG. Um, <laughs> but nothing I enjoy better than going down and sitting down for the whole morning and the whole afternoon and, and watching watching cricket and watching my boy out there play as well. So same as I do enjoy going down to Heffron Park and watching netball, but uh, just love seeing kids get out and, and enjoy themselves. And I've never tried to funnel anyone in, into rugby if they love rugby and get the, the joy out of it that I did then fantastic but you know at a young age it's so important they get different experiences and I try to encourage kids to play every single sport they can get their hands on because um, yeah. you know no matter what they end up specialising and you take different skills from 
you do. all different experiences with different sports. So, you know, rugby players that have got some sort of a background in AFL as well or in football or in tennis or cricket, whatever, they'll have derived some sort of skill from it. Well, your 12-year-old son uh, is in good hands because New Zealand's the current Test World Champions in cricket. Yeah, that's right. It was fantastic. I mean, I went through the heartbreak of watching that one-day final um, yeah. over at Lords as, as well, which uh, we never should have won, particularly given a Kiwi was the one who stiffed us at the end. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that was that was awesome to see. And, and they've built a really good culture within that uh, New Zealand cricket team. McCullum, obviously, a big part of that and, and continued mm. by Williamson and his, and his senior group. And, again, don't know a lot about cricket, but it's it's pretty tangible. It's pretty palpable. Um, the Just the, the humility they go about their business, their desire to do it well, they, they you know, won't win every game, but uh, they – they seem to overachieve based on our talent pool there, which is all you can ask of a team to, to get more out of its players than, than individually you would. So, yeah, great to follow them. And, Warrior, you, you've got a son playing rugby, haven't you? Yeah, I've got uh, a similar similar to Mertz, but not quite as complicated. Uh, I've got uh, two, two, two kids with my first marriage, so both boys 16 and 14, and then uh, remarried and got uh, three- and one-year-old boys as well. So four boys. Um, and, uh, yeah, as you said, uh, older ones enjoy uh, enjoying rugby and um, the young younger ones uh, enjoying UFC at home at the moment. So uh, yeah. I, I, uh, I, I'm a bit like Mertz. I just think that, uh, yeah, the more – we can expose kids to as many different sports, uh, the better it is uh, for their development. And uh, I always big believer in one of the great strengths of rugby is if we can get uh, more kids having access to the game, um, yeah, the, the uh, value proposition that it brings is, uh, I think, quite compelling over our rivals, rival codes. And uh, yeah, certainly the international aspects of, of the game and uh, and also, uh, yeah, the, the uh, diversity as well. I think that uh, yeah, the, the opportunities for young girls now um, is significantly better than uh, than what it has been historically. And uh, yeah, how do you make your local uh, rugby club the, the local community club? And uh, yeah, that's certainly we've got a long way to go. But uh, I think that the opportunities for both uh, boys and girls in rugby are uh, pretty compelling. I'm a bit cautious, Shane, about like the, the expansion of the seasons. You know, there, there just seem to be so many kids that are training for that one sport into the other the yeah. other season. And, you know, if I'm, if I'm coaching rugby kids, I, I want them playing cricket. I or if, if they're yeah. more intelligent, obviously tennis. But yeah. I, I, I do want them playing their summer sports. They need to have a. They need to have variety. They need to have balance, rather than just focusing them down one track when they're 16, 17, 18 years of old of age. I, yeah. So I just hope there's not too much encroaching from from the seasons. I think we need to keep it pretty distinct. I yeah, think so. I think it's, it's fairly similar. Uh, also, I think uh, with, with winter codes. I mean, I, I, I genuinely think that uh, you know, if, if a young boy or girl's playing rugby league on a on a Saturday, um, I'm not too concerned as long as she's playing he or she's playing rugby on a Sunday. And uh, mm. yeah, how do we actually just get more um, boys and girls playing the game? Yeah, I agree. You might have been before your time, Warry, because you look you look very decent now in a suit um, or dressed up going to going to the nab. But that's some of those old pictures of you, mate, you could have easily done UFC. <laughs> I reckon I would have been all right. I mean, it would have been interesting to see whether I would have had a career, actually, uh, had it been in today's uh, day and age where you, you, uh, you, know, you get the, the reviews of someone sitting in, a, uh, in an office or in a box uh, reviewing every breakdown because I reckon that the clear-out punch and the headlock and the <laughs> neck roll, I mean, that was, that, that, that was my go-to.
Can you imagine his insurance bill for that, though, Shane? Imagine if one of those teeth got knocked out, the expense of putting one of those gems back in there. <laughs> it's a good, good sight screen, though. <laughs> okay, guys, I ask um, every guest on the show the same question. I'll ask you first, Andrew. Um, if a young boy or girl was coming through and wanted to play rugby, what advice would you give them? Uh, enjoy yourself. Keep backing yourself. Um, work hard to help your teammates out. Uh, and and don't get um, don't get down if you don't feel like you're a, a achieving what other kids might be at the time mm-hmm. yep. um, or, or getting into teams. You've got a lot of changes, a lot of growth to go through. Um, I certainly wasn't a a, a rugby star um, well, ever in my life, eh? But uh, <laughs> certainly not when I was younger, and it all uh, just sort of happened a little bit luckily for me, I guess. There's there's luck involved in it, so just keep. Keep being confident within yourself. Keep pushing within yourself, um, and and certainly don't ever write yourself off uh, too early because a, a lot of things can change. And worry, what advice would you give to a young boy or girl coming through? Yeah, I think we've probably covered a little bit of it. I'd say expose yourself to as many different sports as you possibly can, mm-hmm. um, and as many different positions as you can uh, as you're coming through, and uh, um, and then surround yourself with people that you really enjoy being around. And uh, I think that. Yeah, we're very fortunate that uh, yeah, throughout my career, I had some great teammates that are still great mates now, and uh, and that was the real enjoyment. Um, and then success follows uh, enjoyment. So, uh, uh, and then overarching all of that is that uh, you know nothing can replace hard work. You know, there's a lot of talented people who we played with that uh, never quite made it, and probably frustrated that they didn't because they didn't uh, work as hard as they should have. And uh, I just think there's no uh, no replacement for hard work. Well, well said, boys. I want to thank you both for coming on the show. Um, there was always great rivalry, rivalry between the Wallabies and the All Blacks, and, and may uh, may that continue for a long time to come. Um, I will guarantee, boys, I will take you for a proper lunch once this lockdown finishes. I'll sit in between you two so that just to stop that niggle once again. But uh, thanks for coming on the show, guys. I really appreciate it. Appreciate it, mate. Looking forward to uh, looking forward to that lunch. See you soon. Absolutely. You. Thank you. That's all for Lunch With Lee this week. A big thank you goes out to our guests, Phil War and Andrew Mertens, and a big thank you to our sponsors, Athlon Partners, Spartan Sports and O'Brien Beer. And a special thank you to me for cooking today because we're in lockdown. Make sure you hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from, and do us a favour, hit five stars, and if you're passionate, leave a review. And come check out some photos on our socials. I'm at Lunch With Lee on Instagram. Next week, we'll be chatting some more legends about music, sport and business on another cracker episode of Lunch with Lee. We'll see you then. Do, 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 do.